you'll open your Bibles with me and please stand as we go into the second chapter of Ephesians today. We'll be looking at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. I'll give you a second to get that. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 7. Let's hear the word of the Lord. As for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages He might show us the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. This is the holy word of the Lord. May we have the ears to hear it, and may his blessing be added to it. Please have a seat. In 1816, English novelist Mary Shelley got into a bit of a contest with her husband, who was a poet, and one of his friends, the famous poet Lord Byron. So the three of them decided on a contest. They were going to see which one of the three could come up with the scariest story. And so Mary Shelley really wanted to win. It was hard, for, hard to be a woman writer back then. and she, she, she really wanted to win this contest, so she thought about the scariest thing that popped into her head, and it ended up being a nightmare that she had the previous week. So she started writing down this nightmare about a scientist who took something that was dead and he brought it to life, but his creation ended up being terrifying rather than wonderful. And this became, of course, the world's first science fiction novel, the novel Frankenstein. And in this novel, uh, Victor Frankenstein, he's a scientist, he has this vision of taking all these dead parts and piecing, stitching them together, and creating, in his mind, what was going to be a beautiful new creation. One lightning bolt later, and this creature arises, and at first, he's just gratified. He's like, look what I did. I took something that was dead, and I brought it back to life. But of course, over the course of the novel, if you've ever read Frankenstein, it doesn't really go quite to plan. The creature goes on a rampage. Victor's just in despair. And it just all ends up in tragedy. And of course, the great irony there is that while he wanted to, to reverse the mortal condition, he ended up bringing even more death and more suffering into the world. But that was not, that novel was not the first time we've ever heard of somebody taking something that is dead and bringing it to life. And fortunately for us, in our lives, this ends up much better than the novel Frankenstein. So in Ephesians 1, you might remember that we learned of God's great plan. And hopefully you've been rereading Ephesians, so it's starting to, get, starting to sink in a little bit. And you're reminded of that God's great plan is to unite 
all of His creation, His redeemed creation, under Christ Jesus. That's His great plan. But the question arises after that, how does He make it happen in the face of many great obstacles? Because at the beginning of chapter 2 here in Ephesians, there is nothing but obstacles that Paul is presenting. It's obstacle upon obstacle. My son Jeremiah is obsessed with a video game called Minecraft, as is every kid in the country today. If you, if you meet a little kid, you want them to talk, just ask them, what do you think about Minecraft? And they'll never stop talking for the next three weeks. If you don't know what Minecraft is, it's basically Legos in video game form. They like to build things. But they also have, they also have some creatures that roam around and they encounter including zombies. And my son really got fascinated with zombies. And they're these cute little zombies that come after you. So one day we're in the car and he asked me, he says, Dad, is there such a thing as a zombie? Is there such a thing as a, a former corpse that is brought back to life as a monster, even as a cute little monster? And my, you know, I, I, we try to have very real conversations. So my first response was, of course not. There's no such, you know, that's just a, something they made up for scary movies. But then I had to stop myself, because that's not entirely true. In fact, when we look here in Ephesians 2, Paul is making the case that all of humanity is a zombie. That we are all born due to original sin. We are born dead on the inside. It's kind of a reverse zombie. Zombies are are dead, but they're reanimated. And he's saying, well, all these people were born, we may move, we may breathe, we may live, but in all reality, our spirit is dead. We are the walking dead. Paul bluntly tells us that even as we're going about our lives, even as we're going about pursuing relationships and careers and goals, he says this, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. That's, that's real talk right there. That's blunt talk. Sin completely killed the core of who you are, of your person. And if you had eyes to witness both the physical world as we do, but also you could see the spiritual world, you would see us as God sees us, as living dead people. Moving a dead thing moving around. And that's not just a metaphor. It's not just a figure of speech. It is a present reality to the world at large right now. To everybody who does not know Christ, they are dead walking. Now that's not how we like to think of ourselves. That's almost very offensive. And you're thinking, well, I'm not a zombie. That's not me. But are you sure? tell it to you this way. There's a very common Christian metaphor that's used that says, well, all of people are like they're drowning at sea. And, and you're drowning and you're going to die, but then God comes along because He loves you and He tosses out His grace like a life preserver. And He tosses that right next to you in the water. So you're going to die. God tosses out the life preserver, but you have a choice to make. And that choice is whether to, to reach out and grab that life preserver and pull it close and let God drag you in and be saved. 
you have that choice. The saving part here is 99% God, but really you have that 1% agency, that 1% choice where you can reach out and, and you're able to grab that. And that's a common metaphor. It makes sense to us. Lot, I've heard a lot of pastors tell that. And we like that because it leaves us with just a, a shred of dignity and pride. God may have done most of the work, but I still had a voice in my salvation. I still had some way that I contributed to being saved. But that's not what Ephesians 2 says. Ephesians 2 doesn't say that we're drowning. Ephesians 2 says you are a corpse on the bottom of the ocean floor. That's what he's saying here. Saying we are so completely spiritually dead, there's absolutely no action you can take on your own to save yourself. And that's not even the really bad news. Oh, gosh, Justin, you're just really cheery this morning. Rain comes down, this brings out... But Paul says this, he says the conclusions of our spiritual death is that as he says here in verse 3, that we are by nature, what? Objects of God's wrath. Because we are dead in our sin, we are objects of God's wrath. Now we think of the word wrath, and it's, we have some strange connotations. First of all, it's not a word we typically use, and if we do use it, we think of somebody just kind of flying off the handle and irrationally getting angry. But that's not how God is. God's actually worse than that. More, more serious, I should probably say. God's wrath is an unrelenting commitment to justice against sin. He's unrelenting. Unrelenting in bringing justice against sin. That is what His wrath is. And so what Paul is asking us in these opening verses, he's asking sinners to consider is this disturbing question. What if God is not for us? What if God is against us? What do we do then? You starting to get the picture here? That he's, he says, well, there's, now in our society today, there's even another popular conception that I think is very false, which says, well, the Old Testament, you're used to seeing God's wrath. That's an Old Testament thing. But somehow when we turned the page into Matthew, God turned into Mr. Rogers all of a sudden. And he's nothing but, but love and, and sweaters and tossing shoes. and he's, he's, he's a happy, fuzzy God. But the God of the Bible is consistent. He does not change. And God is consistently wrathful against sin. Here's, a, here's an example. If you think I'm just pulling this out of Ephesians 1, let's look at John. Let's look at the book of John. John 3.36 starts out by saying, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Thank you, John. That's a beam of sunshine in our day. Pa take that, Pastor Justin. Sounds good. But then John goes on to say this, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life. They'll stay dead because God's wrath remains upon them. John said it. Paul said it. Brothers and sisters, we don't take God's wrath seriously because we don't take sin seriously. 
The only reason that sinners are not experiencing God's wrath right this very second is because God is being patient. He's postponing His judgment. He's postponing that wrath so that He might save the elect. That's the only reason He's not bringing down that wrath right away. And it's not an easy teaching. I'll say that right now. I struggle with this teaching. I go, this is uncomfortable. I don't like hearing this. I want to hear God say, Justin, you're doing okay. You were born okay. You're living okay. You're doing the best you can. But no, Paul right here is summing up in three verses what he spends three chapters at the beginning of Romans arguing. He's saying, guys, I'm cutting you off. I'm cutting all these counter-arguments off. You're not a good person. You're a person who died in your sins a long time ago. God's wrath against you is coming, and there's nothing you can do on your own to escape it. So if there's something that both believers and unbelievers need to take away from the first three verses of chapter 2 here, is that we need to start taking sin a lot more seriously in our own lives. I'm not saying go out and start you know, saying, hey, I saw what Sarah did. Sarah, how dare you, right? We, we need to be looking at ourselves and taking our own sin more seriously. We need to see how incredibly repulsive it is to Jesus. We need to understand that every sin we perform is a blow of rebellion against God. And we need to hold ourselves accountable for what we have done and accept the consequences that are coming for it. With all that said, however, how terrible would it be if Paul ended his letter to the Ephesians here? He said, well, that's it, guys. There's no chance. There's no hope. Guess I'll be seeing you around. Farewell. But fortunately for all of us, he doesn't end it there. And he starts out in verse 4 with perhaps the two best words you'll ever read this week. But God. But God. But there's hope, he says. But there's a chance. But there's a possibility you won't remain a corpse on the bottom of the ocean floor. Anyone who really takes to heart the truth of what Paul has said up to this point has to perk up at hearing, but God. Paul shifts the action away from us, from the dead. He says, you, the dead can't do anything. So let's shift the, our focus, our attention, our action to a living God who can save. And he says this, But God, who loves us, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. Now I can start smiling. We learn two very important things in verses 4 and 5 here. We learn what motivates God and what He does because of that motivation. Why does God move into this situation? Well, if you look really closely, you read between the lines, you're not going to see that God is motivated because your resume is really impressive. He's not, it doesn't say that He's tallied up our charitable givings from 2019 and that just put us right over the line and then He started moving into action. He doesn't say, well, He did a com compare and contrast with all of humanity and you were just a little bit better than all the rest of the sinners out there. It doesn't say any of that. What it says here is his motivation comes 
from who God is. God is motivated because of who he is. God is motivated because he has a passionate love for us. He is in love with you. He is absolutely in love with you. Even as we spit at him and we strike at him and we tell him, God, I hate you and I want to do my own thing, God says, I love you. I love you. Sinclair Ferguson said of this, he said, the Gospels show that the deepest heartbeat of God is for us. God's deepest heartbeat is for you. When we look at what we really are, what we've really done, we look at the first three verses here in Ephesians 2, we go, there is no logical reason why God should love us. But He does. He does. And that right there is a game changer. That's what brings us to this phrase, but God. Motivated by His love for His chosen elect, God dives into the water. He grabs your lifeless spiritual corpse. He brings it up to the beach. And then He does something that's impossible. Absolutely impossible for anybody else to do. He makes you alive again. That grace He transfers to you brings every sin in your life and it puts it onto Jesus Christ's shoulders on the cross. So instead of you being an object of God's wrath, Jesus became an object of God's wrath. We were by nature objects of God's wrath, but by grace, Jesus, the Son, takes the full brunt of our punishment, of God's unrelenting wrath on the cross. It wasn't just a physical death that Jesus suffered. It was a spiritual death on the cross too. And because of that, the Son bore it for you. Because He loved you. He could have gotten off that cross anytime He wanted, but He stayed up there because He loved you. And now, He's revived you. And He's replaced the stench of sin, the, the odor of decay, He's reversed it, and suddenly inside of you is beauty and life. And it starts to branch out into every part of your being. It starts to root out the sin. It starts to kick it out. It says, there's no room for you in here. This is the Holy Spirit's temple. This is where the God of all gods lives. Get out of here, sin. Paul says, when we were dead in our sins. Going back a little bit. He said we followed three things. This is how we lived. We, we followed the trends of worldly culture. We followed the whispers of Satan. And we followed our own desires. That's what we did. That's when pe people talk about free will, we were freely following our will. And that was our will. That was our will to follow those things. But now we have somebody else to follow. And it's the one who made us alive again. It's a radical change in our life and what we do and what we live for. So my encouragement today is don't, if you're saved, don't fall into old patterns. Sometimes we find ourselves doing just that. Find ourselves falling back into old sin, and at first it feels kind of comfortable and it's familiar, and you're almost like, it's not that bad. I can have both God and sin in my life. But after a while, you realize, that's how I used to live when I was dead. When I was dead, and I'm not that anymore. I don't want that anymore. 
Follow the one who breathed the life back into your spirit. Now, if I ever go to a movie theater, not so much these days, but back when I used to, my family knows I have to be there for the movie trailers. I have to be there for the coming attractions. I am almost obsessed with this. I'm like, forget the popcorn. Get your butt in that seat. we got to watch the movies. I get really stupidly excited about movie trailers. I love them. I think they're exciting. I like to get this taste of these movies to come. I'm always sitting there kind of evaluating, is this a movie I want to see? Can they really get me pumped up about what's to come? Well, in verses 6 and 7 here, we're, we're finishing our passage. Paul's kind of doing the same thing for us. He's giving us a coming attraction, a glimpse of the coming attraction of what's going to happen in our lives. Us being deads in the past, Jesus made us alive again right now, but what is to come? What's to come for our future? Let me read this again, because this is a great coming attraction. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages He might show us the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And a passage that started off with a vision of the worst possible future of your life ever. It ends with this glorious glimpse into eternity for you. And there's nothing but good news here. Paul is almost lingering on the goodness of God because he's overwhelmed with it. He loves it. And he says he's overwhelmed with a God who is so rich in grace and great in kindness toward us. And it's this goodness that propels God, that motivates God to lift us up with Christ Jesus in glory. We're not seated at the kids' table, by the way, in heaven. We're not seated like a million miles away from the action. God says, I'm going to seat you right next to Jesus. That's your seat. A seat at the big table so that Jesus can lean over and have an intimate talk with you and show you things and tell you things and reveal things. And you can ask any question you want to the Creator of all, and He'll answer it to you. Isn't that just a great picture? And God will be kind to us. I love that Paul uses this word kindness. So we might think in those first three verses, we're thinking of wrath and the God that maybe hates us. But here is a picture of God who once He brings us alive shows nothing but kindness toward us. We don't go up to heaven and God says, well, I hope you're comfortable because I'm going to recount to you every single sin you ever you know, did against me. I think sometimes as Christians, we kind of worry. That's, how, that's going to be the first you know, you know, few hundred years of our heavenly life. As God saying, well, you know, settle in. You know, i got a list to read back. He's not going to do any of that. He's not going to, he's not going to make you work off your sin. I know my time's up. I'm working on it here. He's going to be astonishingly kind to us in the ages, the coming ages, it calls us. Ages and ages and ages to come. A God who loves you, who's rich in mercy towards you, rich in grace, rich in love, rich in kindness. He's going, guys, this is what you got to look forward to. Right now, there are some people who used to sit in the pews here at Knox, and they are enjoying that seat right next to Christ. 
they're enjoying his kindness and his grace. And man, if they could come back here even for an hour, they would say, guys, you can't even imagine. Can't even imagine how good it's going to get. So as a result of this passage, we as Christians have no business living our lives, trudging along with our heads down, just trying to get through another day. Ephesians asks us to lift up our eyes to our real hope, to think of the future, this wondrous future that's coming. It asks us to filter everything we do and say and think through our love for Christ who loved us, for Christ who did the absolute impossible and took something that was completely dead and made it alive again. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, may we accept the truth of this passage, not just the easy stuff, but also the hard stuff, because it all works together. Lord, the more we see the state that we used to be, the more we understand how great our salvation is, how great your love is for us even though we were dead, but God saved us in His mercy and His love. Lord, I pray for those that right now are still walking around dead. Lord, they've been resisting You. They've been fighting You. They've been denying You. They've been downplaying You. They've been downplaying the seriousness of their condition. And Lord, we're not here at church trying to be elitists, trying to think, well, we've got something they don't got. We're better Lord, our desire and our heart is the same as your desire, which is you desire them to be saved. You desire them to be made alive again, to realize there's a better way to live, a way with you, a way that they don't have to live in their shame. They don't have to live with their guilt. They don't have to live with a future where your justice is coming, but rather a future where your love is on the way. We just pray for those people. Use us whatever way you want to use us, Lord, to reach out and minister to them, to be a word of faith, to be Christians who live the way we talk, the way we read in the Bible, use us whatever way you want to use us, Lord. We're yours. In your name, amen.